0: All right, if you'll turn to that passage in Mark, Mark chapter 1, we're going to take a look further at what is happening in the Gospel of Mark. I I talked to somebody this week about the Gospel of Mark again, and they were saying, How much are you going to preach through on Sunday? So much happens so fast. And I thought, Oh, that's great, until I began trying to prepare the message on Mark chapter 1. So much happens so fast. It's hard to know where to go in this very familiar passage. And the other question is, why does Mark handle these events in the life of Jesus Christ in the way that he does? Mark is very unique in the way that he handles things. Some of you ladies would probably appreciate the difficulty you have as you get to the book of Mark when you talk to your husbands. How was your day? And your husband says, fine. How's everything going? Fine. And that's, You're kind of trying to start a conversation and to him he's having one. And you're trying to get details, and you know, well, how are you feeling about this? Fine. And you just can't get him going on it, and I read the book of Mark, and it almost feels like Mark is doing some of that with the events in the life of Christ, if you don't understand why Mark is doing what he's doing. And I'll be, I grappled with a lot of this this week, as I tried to pray and study and look at this and say, you know, Lord, why didn't Mark include this, and why does he tackle this story this way, and... A lot of it goes back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You remember how the book starts? Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes a very bold statement in the first verse. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. He's just laying it out there as this is the fact. And he's doing it for Romans. And again, when you put it in the context of a Roman Citizen in that day, and you put their religious system around this saying that Mark got. Mark gave them something that they're trying to chew on and figure out okay, what does this mean for Jesus Christ to be the Son of God? And so when we look at Mark chapter 1 and you see event after event after event quickly happening one after another, Mark is putting these things together to explain to Roman Christians and non-Christians alike who may be exposed to his gospel what does it mean for Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. And we talked about it as we went through verses 2 through 8 already, the fact that, well, number one, God already announced that this was happening. In the Old Testament, his prophets announced it. And then, to cement that in the minds of the current people in those days, he sent John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is there as one to herald and proclaim and make straight the way for Jesus Christ to come. And so all of these things are working in Mark's mind as he thinks through this whole gospel message to say, this is how it's been prepared. But then he gets to the events of Christ's life. And he gives us important facts. But he doesn't give us all the facts. And so as we read through this, we need to ask ourselves, what is here? Why is it here? And what is Mark trying to highlight? Because we get to verses uh, 9 through 11 of chapter 1, and we begin reading about something that is in every one of the Gospels. It's the baptism of Jesus Christ, and we read in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. He begins talking about Christ's preparation for his public ministry, the events that are going to get Christ ready to be propelled onto the scene where he would make an impact like none other in all of history. And as he talks about this preparation, he says, in those days Jesus of Nazareth came and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Anybody know more about the story than that? Well, you really are in sad shape today. You know more of that story than that. I mean, the Gospels give us all kinds. What happens when Jesus comes to John the Baptist and says, I want to be baptized. What does John say? Uh, I can't be baptizing you. You ought to be baptizing me. Mark, where is that? It's not in there. And they had a whole discussion. It's not in there. And a lot of things happened around this that are in there. So you've got to ask yourself as we look at this, what is Mark trying to do with this? And he gives us a little bit of it at the beginning. He says, in those days, what days is he talking about? We've got to go back to verses 4 through 8. In the days when John the Baptist was baptizing along the Jordan. Again, does Mark give us any indication of how long those days were in verses 4 through 8? He really doesn't. If you read through the other Gospels, we get an impression at least that it was probably six months or more. That John the Baptist is in the wilderness, crying out, baptizing, saying, Make way the, 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 straight the way of the Lord. Repent of your sins and get right with God to be ready for the Messiah who's coming. And in those days, as he's doing that, Jesus comes from Nazareth. Now again, remember who Mark is writing to. He said, Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee. Would he have had to do that for the Jews? He's trying to give the Romans an idea of the region that it's coming from. The Jews knew a lot about Nazareth. In fact, what did the Jews think about Nazareth? They had disdain for Nazareth, and it goes all the way back. Back in when the Assyrians took over and conquered the northern kingdoms in seven twenty two BC, they took and they deported a lot of the Jews. They took him out and took him back over into Assyria and a lot of Gentiles moved in. So that region in Galilee was heavily Jewish and Gentile, not as badly mixed as the middle of the country with the Samaritans, but there were a lot of Gentiles that lived up in that area. And so when Philip comes to Nathan and says, I found the Messiah and finds out, Nathan finds out he's from Nazareth, what is his take on it? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? The Jews knew where Nazareth was. The Romans didn't. So here Mark is, putting things in context. Jesus is coming from up north. He comes down into the southern end by the, the Jordan. And he's baptized by John in the Jordan. Does that raise any questions in your mind? I asked myself two very important questions as I was going through this. And I hope that as we cover this this morning we can answer those two questions but number one the first question as I read this passage was why was Jesus baptized now those of you who didn't acknowledge knowing any more about the story than you know will look at me now and say I know it was that all righteousness might be fulfilled and I thought about that and I thought about that and you know what I thought about that I thought what does that mean Because I still can't figure out on the the surface when I look at this why Jesus would need to be baptized. He comes to John to be baptized and yet John in John chapter 1 verse 29 looks at Jesus Christ and says, Here is the Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why was John baptizing in verses 4 through 8? It was a baptism of repentance. So why is the sinless Lamb of God coming for a baptism of repentance. His life required no confession or no repentance. And again, we know that, but think about that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God-man, lived, existed on this world for 33 years before the crucifixion without ever needing to repent or confess anything because he was holy. And he, he needed no conversion or transformation John's out there saying, repent, repent for what reason? The Messiah's coming, get ready for him, so you are ready to put your faith and trust in him because I'm baptizing you with water. It's an outward of expression of hopefully what's happening inside you and saying, I want to turn from my sin and be ready for the Messiah. That's what John's baptism was all about. But he looks and says, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you a salvation that's going to change your life. He's going to inaugurate a new covenant where these things are engraved upon your heart. And the Spirit of God is going to live within you. But John didn't do that. And so why is Jesus coming to be baptized by John? I felt a little bit better when I read through Matthew's account of it. And again, we're not going to do this all the way through Mark because there's reasons Mark leave things out. But in trying to figure out the answer to this question, Mark just doesn't give us much information. He just matter-of-factly gives us like he gave us in verse 1. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ was baptized by John in the Jordan River. But when Jesus comes to John in Matthew chapter 3, look over at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 14. When you read Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, what's going on? Jesus comes to John, and he's got, got a simple request. I want to be baptized. John's baptizing all, multitudes of people, according to what the Scripture tells us. We don't know of anybody that John turned away until Jesus comes, and in Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, John says, No, I have need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Think about that statement. What does that statement say about John's faith? John makes one of the greatest affirmations of the sinlessness of Christ found in all the Gospels. If John felt like there was any sin in the life of Christ, what would he have done? Baptized him without question. He looks at Christ and he says, you are the sinless Lamb of God. You ought to be baptizing me. Was John right in some extent, to some extent? Sure he was. John's a sinner just like all the rest of us. He had a wonderful... Ministry that God gave him to prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus looked at John and said, none greater is ever born of woman. But John was a sinner just like you and like me. And yet Jesus Christ said, I want to be baptized by you. And John kind of argues with him. And then Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 goes on to say, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. John didn't want to do this. And again, you look at the scriptures and we're not always given everything that goes on there. I don't know how long John and Jesus talked about this thing. But according to the scriptures, it came down to Jesus, looked at him and said to him, let it be so for now. So when John baptized Jesus, he consented. But what's John thinking even as he's baptizing Jesus? He's trying to figure this whole thing out. It doesn't make sense to John. And what does it mean by fulfilling all righteousness? And that's where the key is, I think, as we look at this and try to understand it. Number one, before we understand it, we need to give kudos to John and say, you know what? I need to live a humble, obedient life the way John did. John yielded to Jesus Christ. Is there any indication that John fully understood before he went down into the water with Jesus Christ exactly what it meant to fulfill all righteousness to do this? John, in faith, trusted Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ said, let it be so for now. And he did it. There's a lesson in that for us, isn't there? Do you understand everything this book tells you about what you need to do as a Christian? Can I tell you what we need to do? Believe it and do it. Because God knows what's best for us. And God has a plan. And even in this baptism of Jesus by John, God had a plan. And as you see this baptism, what you see is Jesus Christ not as a sinner but identifying with the sinners. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come. You remember what 2 Corinthians tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.21? God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And as Jesus walked down and is baptized by John, it's going to be a reminder to people in the days to come that this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Not his sin, but your sin. And my sin. And so this is a foreshadowing. It's interesting when you think about Jesus' baptism really looked forward to the cross and what he was going to do. And our baptism does what? It looks back to the cross and what he already did. And so Jesus is coming, fulfilling God's purpose. One, identifying to what he's going to do is taking on the sins of the world and your sin and mine. But number two, the second reason for this in his preparation for his ministry is he is about to have a divine authentication for his ministry. Like no other. How many of you like baptisms? I mean, I love baptismal services. I love baptismal services, especially when folks are given a chance to give at least a short testimony. It's exciting to hear how God has changed lives. How the Spirit of God has convicted people and brought them to Jesus Christ. And they want to live for Christ and they want to follow Him. And when I was a kid, and we've done it a few times here, my wife really loves it when we do it. Because they did it at our church. But often what we would do, someone would be baptized and then the congregation would sing that chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. Because that's what you're testifying to. Jesus Christ has saved my soul, forgiven my sins, and now I am dead with him and I'm living for him and not for myself. And it's a wonderful picture. And so as we see this picture and this wonderful opportunity to see what God has done, we then see the baptism of Jesus Christ and we see something much, much more powerful than any baptismal service I've ever been to. God is going to put his stamp of authentication on Jesus Christ's ministry, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, remember how John works? Quickly, quickly, quickly. Well, John, Jesus goes down to the Jordan. John baptized him. And then immediately, as he comes up out of the water, what happens? He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's interesting, again, Mark doesn't share any of the dialogue, but he shares the action going on. He doesn't share the dialogue between Jesus and John. He does share the truth of God concerning Jesus. The Son of God, because it's again another proof to those that John is writing to that this is truly the Son of God. This is something unique that happened. He came out of the water, and look at that verse what it says. It says, And the heavens being what? Torn open. What does that look like? It's interesting when you look at that verb torn open. You see, I've, I've seen the, 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 the lovely paintings, you know, where the clouds have kind of parted a little bit. You see this dove floating down. And it, it, there's, there's some truth to some of that as you're seeing what's going on. But this was a huge event. The, the torn open here, that word is meant as a form to tear or to rip. It's the same verb. It's only used one other time in Mark. Remember when the centurion looked at Jesus Christ on the cross and said, truly this is the Son of God, and then Scripture tells us what? The veil before the Holy of Holies was torn into. It's this verb. It's ripped in two. God tore it apart to show. Now there is access to God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to be held apart from God. And that verb is used here as well. As Jesus is sitting here, God is making a dramatic statement. So I doubt it was just a couple clouds that parted a little. I can't tell you exactly what it looked like. There's only a few times in Scripture where we see this idea of the heavens being torn open. Remember when Stephen was stoned? Stephen looked up and said, you know, the heavens were open to him. he said, Jesus Christ standing there, waiting for him. It's special occasions, but this one even more so because as he comes out, the heavens are rent open, and then the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Don't take this as the only thing you take home, but what does the verse say? Does it say a dove descended upon Jesus Christ? It says, the Spirit of God descended like a dove. And so we see so many paintings of this dove descending on Christ. I'm not sure exactly what this looked like because you know how Luke describes it? Luke describes it in his book is in bodily form the spirit came down like a dove. So in some way, shape, or form people saw but they knew it was a supernatural thing happening and it's not like lightning struck. It just came down slowly and settled on Jesus Christ, the spirit of God. As the spirit comes in And he he comes upon Jesus Christ, and he is going to empower his ministry. And again, don't ask me to explain exactly how that works, because we're going to get into Trinitarian things that I just can't. We have a vast God, but Jesus Christ in the flesh, the Spirit's working together with Him. Why does Christ need the Spirit? The Spirit of God works with him. That's what I can tell you as I look at this. Because you're going to see in just a moment, the Spirit's going to thrust him out into the wilderness. So the Spirit is a key part of his ministry. So the Spirit comes down. And it's the idea, again, it's the anointing saying, this is my Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the Son of God. As you see this visual picture of the Spirit descending upon Jesus Christ, but even more impacting than that, As that happens, there's a voice. There's a voice from heaven. Who does Mark say the voice is? He doesn't say. How do we know who the voice is? Because the voice says, This is my beloved son. It's the voice of God. What did that sound like? Come on, Mark, give me some more information. He's not going to give it to you, but it's very clear. The voice of God comes down, he looks down and says, You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, I love what one commentator said that because I started pulling that phrase apart. I want to know what every word meant. And it's a great study. And there's there's good theology in here, but there's a danger. And the danger is we fail to hear what the voice actually says while we're pulling apart all the words. What did the voice say? This is my beloved son. Why is that? Mark left out so many pieces of this story. Why is that one so important? Because Mark already said in verse 1, Jesus Christ is the son of God. You want proof? God ripped the heavens open, sent his spirit to descend upon him, and verbally let us know in case we missed it, this is my beloved son. Don't miss that. It, he's like, well, how could you miss that? The Jews did. There's a time when Jesus Christ is going to be standing before the scribes and the Pharisees and, and the chief priests and the elders, and they're going to ask him in chapter 11 of this book, as he's healing... As he's forgiving sins, they got really irritated with him. How do you get irritated with somebody who's healing the sick? Your power base is being eroded. And they look at him, and and they're all about the power and the authority, and they say to him, by what authority do you do this? What did Jesus point back to? He asked him a question. He said, well, the baptism of John. What was the greatest event during the baptism of John? This is my beloved son, in whom." I am well pleased. And he looks back and says, that that, that baptism of John, was it from men or was it from God? And again, we read the story and the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, they didn't want to answer him. Why? Because the people believed that he was at least a great prophet and they didn't want to put any kind of credence to that statement. And so they're like, well, we can't tell. And Jesus looks and says, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. But by what authority did he do those things? Anybody who was there that day know God himself looked down and said, this is my beloved son. That's the authority behind it. He is the son of God. That's why as we look through this book, Mark again and again and again is going to go through so many quick things happening in the ministry of Jesus. But chapter 2, verse 5, he has the power to forgive sins because he is the son of God. He has the power to accept sinners to himself later in that chapter because he is the Son of God. He has the power to call a tax collector to be one of his disciples because he's the Son of God. Can you imagine what that did in the lives of the disciples? Mark, talks, Mark doesn't talk about a lot, but he talks about that in chapter 2. He talks about the fact that Matthew was called, if you're a Jew looking for the Messiah, who's the last person you want to be to, is one of the, the 12 close, intimate disciples of Jesus Christ? A tax collector. He's colluding with the enemy. Not only is he doing that, he's giving my money to the enemy. And Jesus Christ looks and says to Matthew, what? Follow me. The same thing he said to Peter and James and John and the other disciples. He can do that because he's the son of God and he changes hearts and lives. Healing of the sick, casting out demons recovering the true intent and meaning of the Sabbath, he gets to redefine the Sabbath for the scribes and the Pharisees. He drove them crazy because what he did was through the authority as the Son of God. Not only that, but he goes on later in this book and he's going to challenge the religious establishment. He's going to challenge the oral authority of the scribes and the Pharisees. He's going to... Challenge the way they use the temple. He's going to challenge the authority of the Sanhedrin. And it all goes back and is authenticated, at least at what point? When God looks down and says, by what authority is he doing this? This is my beloved son. And in him, I am well pleased. What a testimony as we go through this baptism of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but then verses 12 and 13. He's prepared for ministry by his public baptism and what God is doing in putting his stamp of approval on Jesus and his ministry. But then in verses 12 and 13 it says, And the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. I was struck by the fact that Mark is probably the only gospel that left this picture in my mind so vividly. Jesus Christ is at the Jordan, the heavens are ripped open. The Spirit descends upon him the blessing and power and guidance in his ministry. God cries down, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is a mountaintop spiritual moment. You would expect to go from there to joy and rejoicing and, and having a wonderful time. And what happens in the life of Christ? Immediately, what happens? Satan gets in and messes things up. Not exactly. He's involved but whose plan is it for Jesus Christ to go from baptism to the wilderness and temptation? Immediately. That's God's plan. How do we know? Look at what it says here. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That is a powerful word. The idea is he propelled him out into the wilderness. The Spirit is guiding Jesus' ministry. And he sends him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days. What happened during those 40 days? Mark doesn't tell us. You know the other interesting thing? Take a look at these verses. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Well, what happened? How much does Mark tell us? Mark's expecting you to go to Matthew and Luke and John to get those details, isn't he? Those books don't exist yet when Mark's writing his gospel for all intents and purposes. So what is Mark doing here? Mark has a very pointed purpose in talking about his temptation. And he gives us a summary without details because this testing is a big part of Jesus Christ's ministry, once again. It's divinely orchestrated. God decided that Jesus would go from baptism to temptation. And we know from reading the other stories, when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, how much was he eating? He fasted for 40 days. So in his flesh... He was at a point of weakness. And Satan comes and tempts him. And is Satan successful? You guys are sleeping this morning. Is Satan successful? You're not here today if he was. But he's not successful. What does Mark say? He was tempted by Satan. Period. How do we know he wasn't successful? Mark's going to tell us later. Mark's going to show the battle that Jesus Christ is going to have through his miracles through his parables, as he attacks all that Satan has put down here in his kingdom. The idea goes all the way back. John knew it. First John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So as Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted, what's the devil's objective? If Jesus Christ will only sin, now it's my kingdom that wins and not his. God's whole plan is messed up. And we know how he attacks him from other passages, but Mark's not going to cover that. Mark's just going to look and say, Jesus was tempted, and let me tell you by the next stories how victorious he was. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to heal sick. He's going to tell parables about this devil who has captive all of these people who are sinners and how Jesus Christ has the power to set them free. And so all of that's coming as we go through this, as Mark talks about what's going on and how things are working. In fact, you look further in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. We'll get there shortly. Jesus' first miracle, it's casting out demon. Who won? Jesus Christ's kingdom is beginning to establish itself here on earth as is, that's is, is happening. And then again, that parable in chapter 3, verse 28, as he is, takes the offensive against Satan. And then... Not only do we see this preparation, preparation through his baptism, as God puts his stamp of approval, as it is, so to speak, on Jesus' ministry, you have the temptation where Jesus goes out and the arch enemy of God. And that's the word he uses, that word Satan is really more an idea of the enemy or the one attacking that which God is doing, that it is a full name. And the idea as we look at that is Jesus is victorious over that. And then we come to verses 14 and following. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We go from here to the proclamation of Jesus' ministry. What is Jesus' ministry going to be all about? John gives it to you right up front, just like he did in the book. He said, my book is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' ministry is about this message that he's about to give you. This message that is so key. And again, he skips over so many things in the life of Christ to get there. Why? Because this that he's about to cover, this message that he's going to give, that Jesus Christ was proclaiming in Galilee, is key to verse 1 the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, were there things that had already happened in Jesus' ministry? If you read the book of Mark, doesn't it sound like Jesus went from baptism to temptation to ministering in Galilee? Is there anything missing in there? You go back to the book of John chapter 1. Jesus ministers in Judea for quite some time. He has this conversation with Nicodemus. It's not in here. He goes from judea up to galilee again and when he goes where does he stop in samaria because we need to stop there again the spirit of god working in that ministry and he talks to the samaritan woman and all that's missing in mark because mark is now getting to the fact of here's what i want you to see the gospel of the son of god is key upon the message The gospel, what is that good news? Because up until now, Mark has kind of hinted at that good news, but has he really given, if you read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, how much of the gospel do you understand? You know, Jesus is the Son of God. You know, God is well pleased with him. But you don't get a lot of the details yet of the gospel of what really that good news is to us that's being proclaimed. But as we begin in verse 14, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. So here's a Mark in time again. John's arrested. There's a whole story that goes with that. Mark doesn't give it to us. But he does say that causes Jesus, or at that time, Jesus goes into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And what is that gospel? Again, Mark's going to summarize that very, very succinctly here. when he says in verse 15, this is what he's saying when he talks about the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus came with three aspects to his ministry. Number one, the time is fulfilled. What did he mean by that? Because the word time here doesn't mean time like it's 1140 right now. It doesn't even mean time like we're November twelfth. It's not the calendar day. The time is here is the word used in Greek is a event in time and history. And in this case, a huge event in time and history. Jesus looked and said, The time is fulfilled. That time is the same time that God was talking about. Paul talked about it in Galatians chapter four, verse four. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. And now Jesus is looking and saying, "The ministry is beginning. My earthly ministry has begun." You remember one of the things that Mark doesn't give us—the wedding at Canaan. Mary comes to Jesus. There's no wine left at the wedding, and she's like, "You can do something about this." And Mary's faith is amazing. Mary's an amazing study. We don't have time for it this morning, but you can do. It. And what did Jesus say? My time is not yet. It's not yet come. When he gets to Galilee, what Mark is saying is, my time is here, and here's my message. And now you are going to have to grapple with this message. You're going to have to decide what to do with this message. My time has come. He says, the time is fulfilled. It's ready. Everything's in place. And then he says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Again, Roman idea of kingdom. Is this going to engender Jesus to the Caesars? And that, that's what, remember Pilate? Pilate was just scratching his head trying to figure out what this kingdom was. Because it was no kingdom like Pilate had ever seen before. He couldn't figure out why this, man, Jesus was being called a king. And Jesus looks and he says, the time's fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean when he says the kingdom of God? Because what will the Jewish folks think when they hear the kingdom of God is at hand? What were they thinking on Palm Sunday. Jesus Christ is going to come and his kingdom being at hand means the Jews are about to reign again. Hallelujah. He is going to wipe out the Romans. Think about Jesus' ministry. We're at the front end of it, but if you, you take it and you transplant it onto the Palm Sunday, why were folks so excited? Blind people were seeing, demons were being cast out, people with blood issues were being healed, people with issues all their lives were being taken care of, the lame were walking, all of these things were happening. And if this man could do all of those things, can you imagine what he could do to the Romans? That's why Palm Sunday was such an excitement for the Jewish folks. That's why they could go from Hosanna to crucify him in a few days because they realized he's not doing what we thought he was going to do. And before we get really upset with them, what did the the disciples anticipate? The same exact thing. Why did Peter draw his sword in Gethsemane and attack those who were coming? Because Peter was ready to fight for his Lord and fight for the kingdom because they were going to rule and reign, and he believed it. Peter was a fisherman. Peter wasn't a soldier. Fishermen draw their swords, nothing good happens. But Peter was ready because Jesus was there. But this kingdom that he talks about, there's three aspects to it. Number one, it was a spiritual kingdom and they had trouble with that. In fact, Colossians 1.13 puts it this way. He, talking about Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus told the people to look because the kingdom was amidst, it's amidst them now. And he was talking about spiritual change in hearts and lives, turning to him as the Savior and Lord, and that spiritual kingdom. And that's a part when he looked and said to the people, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom's at hand. It's about to happen. And the power for that kingdom is going to be Calvary and the resurrection. And all of that is coming as Jesus comes into Galilee, preaching the gospel. And so you've got this spiritual kingdom. Now there is an earthly kingdom Revelation 20, we studied it, so we're not going to study it this morning. We're almost out of time. But Revelation twenty one through 6, there's a time when Jesus Christ will reign. And that kingdom that the Jews anticipated will be here on earth. And all of those promises to the Jewish people and to David and his descendants throughout the ages will be fulfilled through a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And glory be to God, that's not the last aspect of the kingdom. There's an eternal kingdom. Read Revelation 22. New heaven and a new earth, all the old things are passed away. No more sin, no more death, no more tears. And Jesus Christ will for all eternity reign. So this whole thing is being talked about as Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God's at hand. And we're in the midst of seeing it established, the spiritual part, now and soon. If the signs of the times are anything like they look like, that second phase can't be long off. Jesus Christ is coming again to establish his earthly kingdom. So he says all this is happening. So what is our responsibility? Look again at that passage. It says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What do you need to do? Why am I preaching in Galilee? Why is this gospel going forward even today? Because you need to do two things. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's there's the gospel. There's the message that he began talking about in verse 1. How do we come to Christ? How do we know our sins are forgiven? How do we know we're headed to heaven? How do we know we're in a right standing before God? You repent and you believe the gospel. And that first thing's been taken out of many of the presentations of the gospel. But that is so important. Why was John preparing the way? What was he doing? He was telling people, you need to repent of your sin. We're sinners. And we don't live in a society that wants to think about being sinners. It goes, it goes way back, but you know, it, it, as we study more modern age, it goes back to Darwin and evolution. Why is that so important to them? Why can people look at these crazy ideas in evolution and say, it's good science when they know it's not? Because for them it has to be. Because if this stuff isn't here by accident, if there wasn't a big bang or whatever we want to go back to and it created all that we have, then there's a creator. And all this order we see was put together by a God who is in control and sovereign and knows what's happening. And if there's a God and it didn't just happen by chance, then he's the God who controls all these things. And I am going to answer to him. So it's much easier for me to believe this all happened by accident because I don't want to answer to anybody but me. You say, really? How do you think we can be where we are today? Where genders aren't genders anymore. Marriage isn't between a husband and wife. Abortion is the election issue that's carrying elections all across the nation. And it's not in favor of life. How do we get there? Because we don't feel like we have to answer to God anymore. We answer to ourselves and whatever feels good to us, we put it into place. And Jesus Christ is coming and saying, repent of that nonsense. That's sin. Repent of the sin in your life. And that idea of repent, again, often we look at repentance and we get nervous because... For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That is absolutely gospel truth. Repentance is also the gift of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God working in our hearts and bringing us to the fact that we realize that we are sinners in need of that gospel. In need of that faith. And so Jesus is looking and saying, what John told you was true. He said, repent and turn. Turn to God. It's not that you're doing works to become like you ought to be, but you have to be convicted by the Spirit of God and say, you know what, I don't want my sin, I want God. I want to please God with my life. I would love to have a stamp of approval like God looking down and saying, in that person I am well pleased. And that's what the gospel is all about, repentance and belief. So we have to repent, we have to have this change of mind of who we are and our sin and turn to God, and then we have to believe in the gospel. What does he mean when he says believe in the gospel? That's that's been muddied. The waters have been muddied by all kinds of things. Again, I shared yesterday, I've got a Roman Catholic neighbor and I'm burdened for him and I don't know how to reach him and it seems like every time I have an opportunity it's a bad time to try and talk with him because stuff just gets messed up. But I keep praying for him because he believes he's a good person. He's religious. He's a good Catholic person. But He believes that if he does enough good works, he's going to heaven. He told me that on the phone the other day. Now, he had to hang up right afterwards. I thought, I'm coming back. I got a book book on my desk saying, what is the gospel? And it's a gift for him for Christmas. Maybe the last gift he ever lets me give him. But uh, he's a great guy. He'll give you the shirt off his back. But he told me, you know, I think we, we had a man die in our neighborhood. And that's how we got talking. He said, I think as I'm looking at things that I'm a religious guy. And I thought, well, that's okay. That's good, I guess. And he's like, and I'm pretty sure I've done enough good things that God's going to accept me. And I thought, this sounds like one of those illustrations you give, but you have no name to put with it. And then he said, you know, and if God won't take me after all the good things that I did, I guess I'm probably just going to go to hell, and that's it. I just, there's no hope. I said, what there is hope. And he's like, i got to go. And I'm like, oh, and I got on the phone, so that conversation over. But it, it, it can't be over yet. Because the belief in the gospel is it doesn't matter if I'm religious. It doesn't matter how good a person I am. It matters, what do I do with Jesus Christ? That's why Mark starts this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you get Jesus Christ wrong, none of the rest of it works. And so Mark is looking and saying, this is what Jesus preached. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ so that faith is trusting in Him, trusting in His finished work of redemption for over sin and victory over death and placing my faith entirely in Him and not at all on me and believing that what God did through Jesus Christ on Calvary, he did for me. Well, what does that look like? What am I tru- when it says trust in Jesus Christ, what am I trusting him for? And this is at the heart of salvation. And don't get this wrong. So, am I trusting him for forgiveness of sin? Yes. But if you walk down an aisle and say, I want my sins forgiven, pray this prayer and walk down the aisle and feel good about yourself because your sins are forgiven and you live like you always lived and you do what you always did, that probably wasn't saving faith. It's a part of it. But there's more to it. Is it eternal life in heaven? Yes, it is. That's a benefit. That's what God does graciously for us. But if you walk down an aisle and say, I want to come to Christ because I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. That's not what you need to be putting your faith in. It's a part of putting your faith in Christ. Is it a recovered relationship to the Father? Now we're getting closer. Yes, it is. Because your sin has separated you from God. And we don't hear much preaching on it nowadays, but because you're separated from God, you are under God's wrath, and God will send men and women who are under his wrath to an eternity of punishment in hell. It's not all over after this life. It's not that God's going to let us all into heaven at the end of the day. There's a a price to be paid. What this trusting in Christ is, is I am relying on Jesus Christ to secure for me a righteous verdict from God. Because one day I'm going to stand before God and God better look at you and say, not guilty based on the blood of Jesus Christ that's covered your sins. And if you don't get that not guilty, you'll spend eternity in hell. And I trust in Christ and Christ alone and what he did for me in Calvary, the fact that the Son of God took my sin upon him and died on Calvary and I put my faith in that and that alone. I turn from my sin to God and say, God, make me what I ought to be instead of what I am. And God begins to work. And salvation takes place. And so as Jesus Christ comes out, he's not just trying to get followers. He's not having a mega campaign saying, raise your hand, pray this prayer. You're all saved. Amen. Now go home. He's saying, follow me. He's saying, repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in me. Believe in what I'm doing. Have you done that? Because that message that Jesus Christ gave that day is still the key for you today. There's a lot of good people. There's a lot of good religious people. It scares me that there's a lot of good religious people sitting in Baptist churches whose faith and trust is in totally in Jesus Christ. Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone? If you come in repentance of your sin, asking for forgiveness based on what he did for you, not anything you can do. Do you know you have a right standing before God, not because of you, but because of him. It's your faith in Christ. If you haven't done that, I pray that today will be the day that you take the gospel message of Jesus Christ and apply it to your own lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, for, thank you for the gospel of Mark. It's hard-hitting, it's fast-paced, but it's centered on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we'll take the message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, attested to by your spirit and by you yourself, the Jesus Christ who had victory over his temptation and sin and Satan, the Jesus Christ who preached the message, repent and believe in me. Lord, I pray that we will put our faith and trust in that Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life. And Lord, I pray that those of us who have done that as we go on and look in this book of Mark will realize what it means to be a child of God. Mark isn't going to leave it here. He's going to take us through a journey of Jesus' teaching of what it means to follow him. Lord, may we learn, may we gain, may we become more like Jesus Christ as we continue to study this book. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.